0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: So our reading today can be found in Hebrews chapter 7 starting at verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi... Who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever.
0: Well, I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you've got a friend who is thinking, up of, thinking of giving up on the Christian race. Actually, of course, that's not going to be imaginary for many of us, is it? It's not imaginary for me. I have a friend like that at the moment. But, but I'd like to imagine that it's because they're in danger of being imprisoned for their faith. Their church leader has just got out of prison, uh, imprisoned for his faith. And imagine this friend writes to you, an email perhaps, and says, I just don't think I have strength for this anymore. I'm losing hope. I I can't even listen in church anymore. I want to give up. How are you going to be a good running buddy to that person? What are you going to say to them to keep them going? How are you going to encourage them? Would you... Give them a detailed analysis of Jesus' high priesthood, weaving in Psalm 110, Genesis 14, and bits of the Mosaic law and the Levitical priesthood. Would you do that? I wouldn't. But that is precisely what our author does here in Hebrews 7. Did you see? Hebrews 7, it was written into this context. Christians, under pressure of persecution, wanting to pack it all in. Look ahead to 10.33, 10.33, if you've got your Bibles there. You see 10.33? 10.33, sometimes in the past you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. And from other parts in the letter, we see this kind of persecution is happening again. But this time, it's making them want to give up. And so our writer tells them, just what a great priest they have. So weird. In fact, he spends six chapters telling them what a great priest they have. Chapters 5 to 10, the central part of Hebrews, is all about this central point that they have a high priest look at eight verse one where the writer very helpfully tells us what hebrews is all about eight verse one just after our reading the point of what we're saying is this we do have such a high priest the central point of these central chapters we have a high priest how is that going to keep people going Well, you know, knowing that we have a great high priest can breathe hope into hopeless souls. It can give perseverance to pilgrims in danger of packing it in. Just at the end of last week, the writer promised us in 6 verse 19, just before our reading today, maybe you could turn there too, 619, the writer promised us that Jesus' priesthood can act As a certain hope for hopeless souls. He describes it there as an anchor for those tempted to drift away from the faith. What is it, this hope? Well, he says this hope, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's talking about Jesus, our priest. He has entered He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood. It's what we need to hear if we are thinking of giving up. Jesus' priesthood is what we need to tell each other, to encourage one another, to keep going in the race. We have a great high priest. And if we can grasp hold of this truth, it will give hope to hopeless souls. Two weeks ago, we began looking at how gentle and compassionate our high priest is, how he's for us. Do you remember Pete told us all about that? But then the writer had to stop because he was worried that we were drifting off. And now after checking that we're still with him, he returns again to talk about our priest. And the thing he adds today is how perfect And permanent our priest is. See how great your perfect, permanent priest is. That's the big point today. See how great your perfect, permanent priest is. Our passage splits into three sections that take us on a journey actually through um, the Bible and through history. Verses 1 to 10 we see ancient Abraham pointed to his superiority. Verses 11 to 19, the Levitical priests pointed to his power. And verses 20 to 28, God appointed him priest permanently because he is perfect. Superiority, power, permanence, perfection, See how great your priest is. Well, let's look first at verses 1 to 10. Ancient Abraham pointed to his superiority. Now, um, back in chapter 5, we first heard that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. 5 verse 6 it was. A quote from Psalm 110, actually, where God says to this Messiah figure in the psalm, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We've got to do a little bit of background work here to work out what's going on. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It's actually the most quoted messianic psalm in the New Testament. In it, King David listens into somebody else's conversation. It's a conversation between the Lord God and another Lord the king to come, the great Messiah. And there are two promises made in it by the Lord God to David's future Lord, the Messiah. The promises are that the the Messiah will be an all-conquering king. God will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And the second promise that we know less well is that the Messiah will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, with that out of the way, let's move to our passage today. Melchizedek, he lived in the time of Abraham, and he is the first priest mentioned in Scripture. The very first. And God says here that he is the blueprint of the great priest who will one day come, the king priest, the Messiah, Jesus. Look at verse 1. 7 verse 1. Like Jesus, he is king and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. But notice here how the writer first dwells on the greatness of Melchizedek by looking at the details of his name. Did you see that? Middle of verse two, first the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Those are very great titles, very great titles. They're actually titles that belong ultimately to Jesus, aren't they? King of righteousness, our prince of peace. Who is this Melchizedek? He certainly looks like Jesus, doesn't he? And of course, that's the point. He's a blueprint of the one to come. But there's something even more suggestive of Christ in the way that Melchizedek is described back in Genesis 14. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, um, in Genesis, all great people are introduced with a genealogy that tell us who their grandparents are and what line of descent they come from. All great people. But, but can you see that Melchizedek is greater than, arguably, the greatest figure in Genesis? He's greater than Abraham. And yet he has no genealogy, and that's just weird in Genesis. And the point is that the Holy Spirit did this on purpose. Got Moses to describe Melchizedek this way, deliberately, as a deliberate strategy to well make him suggestive of the priest who would eventually come, who was really without beginning of days or end of life. Some people think Melchizedek was actually Christ himself, a pre-incarnate appearance. But verse 3 sort of shuts that down, doesn't it? He resembles the Son of God, we're told. But the Holy Spirit guided Moses' description to give us a blueprint of the superior king-priest to come. Well, so much for the details of his description. Let's look at the details of his actions now. Verse 4, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, now, that's weird, isn't it? Why does Melchizedek taking a tenth of the plunder after Abraham had defeated these kings, why does that show his greatness? Well, many years later, when Abraham's descendants Israel were settled in Canaan, when they had a Levitical priesthood of their own, and God dwelling amongst them in a tabernacle where those Levitical priests served, the Israelites then tithed their wealth to the Levites. They gave a tenth of their wealth to the Levites. They did that to worship God, as it were, through the Levites, and for the upkeep of the tabernacle and later the temple. And you might think then, well, what's the big deal about Melchizedek taking a tenth then? I mean, if other people did it later. But the thing is, Melchizedek is not one of those other people. He's not a Levite. He's not a Levite. And yet, Abraham still tithes to him. More than that, look at the end of verse 6. Even though Abraham was given the promises of blessing by God, it's Melchizedek who blesses Abraham. Not Abraham who blesses Melchizedek. It's really weird. It's really surprising. If God is going to bless the whole world through Abraham, surely Abraham should be blessing Melchizedek. But Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And verse 7, verse seven, the inferior is blessed by the superior. And of course, there's a very real sense in which every Levitical priest to come was tithing to Melchizedek and being blessed by Melchizedek as well. Because did you see verse 10? Melchizedek, when he met Abraham, Levi was in Abraham's body, the body of his ancestor. Abraham uh, was tithing to Melchizedek and receiving blessing from him whilst wearing his Levi jeans. That was just to check you're still awake after all this uh, very detailed work on the text. Glad to see there is somebody still awake. Ancient Abraham representing all the priests to come, representing all the people of Israel, acknowledged Melchizedek was superior than all the people of Israel. Now, if the blueprint is that superior, then how great must the real deal be? Can you see how God wants to enlarge our view of Jesus' priesthood through the greatness of the blueprint? But it might seem a bit of a strange way to go about it. Why bother giving us this cryptic figure, Melchizedek, in Genesis? And then some inferior priests in the Levites. And only centuries later in Psalm 110 say, actually, it was the Melchizedek-type priest that I always had in mind for you. He's my plan A priest. Why go through all that rigmarole? Well, if any of you work in marketing, you might know the answer already. Have any of you guys seen um, a teaser ad campaign? where a a cryptic clue is dropped in advance about some great product that's about to launch. For me, it was the Greg's Vegan Sausage Roll, those videos on YouTube, that announced in advance the great day in Veganuary when it would come. And then its sequel, the vegan steak bake. And if those passed you by, don't worry. But if this has passed you by that God has been preparing all history to bring a superior high priest. If that has passed you by, then do worry. You know, the bigger the build-up, the bigger the product usually. Well, God hasn't just released some new product. He's given us a priest that we might come into his presence. And the build-up has been going on through all history. Can you see how great Your superior priest must be. All of history given to point to him. Right from the beginning, ancient Abraham pointed to his superiority. Verses 11 to 19. Verses 11 to 19. The Levitical priests pointed to his power. His power. Now, Hebrews is written to Christians, of course, but you might be new to Christian things, so I do want to just take a moment to explain to you what a priest actually does, what the job of a priest is. Do you see the end of verse 19 there? It sums up the job pretty well. End of verse 19. A better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. That's the job of a priest. To allow uh, impure, imperfect sinners who do evil and deserve evil to draw near to a God who is perfect and pure and sinless without fear of being punished because the priest secures forgiveness and favor from that God. We draw near to God through a priest. And verses 11 to 19 are saying only Jesus is powerful to do that job only Jesus look at 7:11 7:11 if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood why was there still need for another priest to come one in the order of Melchizedek not in the order of Aaron do you see the point the levites didn't do the job All they did was show us that we needed a different kind of priest who could do the job. Look at 18 to 19. The former regulation is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced, by which we draw near to God. The Levitical priest was weak and useless. That is a startling thing to say about a priesthood that is given by God Himself. Now, it's not that it had no purpose, it's just that it was weak and useless when it came to helping sinners draw near to a sinless God. It didn't work. So, what was its purpose? Well, of course, its purpose is revealed in its very weakness. Its very weakness says to us we need a different, better, more powerful priest. Its weakness points us forward to the one who can do the job. If you like, if Melchizedek was the blueprint for the superior priest, the Levitical model is like an architect's model. An architect's model. Do we have an architect's model for our Building for the Future project? I haven't seen one, but let's just imagine for a minute we have. And imagine trying, as we wait for that building to open up, imagine trying to use the model with its tiny little doors and its PA system that you can't plug in. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? You'd look crazy. The model is given in its uselessness to point you to the real thing, so that you get excited about the day the doors open on the real thing, so that you can go in there and meet together with God's people at last. But of course, what's even crazier nowadays, is that the real thing has come. And yet, as human beings, even though the God-given model didn't work, we now spend all our time building models of our own. That don't work. Do you know, um, God scrapped the model, but we build it over and over again. We take our church leaders and we call them priests. Even though that language falls away in the New Testament when the real priest comes. We dress them up in special clothes We cordon them off in special parts of a building that we think is special and make them do special ceremonies on our behalf so that we might, through them, draw near to God. But they don't work. None of the models work. Certainly not ones that God didn't give us. But of course, we know that already, don't we? Because we're good evangelicals. But of course, we slip into thinking that maybe our worship leaders can draw us into God's presence. Or maybe the power of a preacher can bring me into his presence. But we can't. None of us can. No human being can even get themselves into God's presence, much less you. No human being. No sermon, no song is powerful enough. In fact, the power of a good sermon and a good song is to point Beyond itself to the one, the only one who is powerful to do the job. The Levitical model showed us that he alone is the powerful priest. Finally, verses 20 to 28. God appointed him priest permanently, because he is perfect. It's interesting, isn't it? There are always, usually, safeguards built into any job appointment, aren't there? Uh, Safeguards that allow you to remove the post holder in case they stop doing their job properly. Thankfully, nobody noticed that my six-month probation period has passed. But can you see, can you see that when God appointed Jesus priest, He appointed him permanently on oath and gave himself no room for maneuver, no room to retire this priest. Isn't that striking? Look at verse 21. Verse 21 takes us again back to Psalm 110. Verse 21, he became a priest with an oath. And we know from last week that when God makes an oath, he cannot change what he's saying. Because he doesn't change, and his word doesn't change. He appointed this priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. A permanent appointment, priest forever How can God do this? Isn't this a bit risky? What if Jesus doesn't do the job properly and needs to be removed? No probation period. No contract with provisions for misconduct. Isn't that a little naive, God? No. This priest is worthy of a perfectly permanent position because he is permanently perfect. The writer finishes here by unpacking his perfections for us. And they're they are astounding. In verses 23 to 25, we see his permanence. Verse 23, other priests died. But not the superior priest with the power of an indestructible life. And, and verse 24, because he lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. End of verse 25, he always lives to intercede For us, right now in heaven, Jesus is alive, interceding for us. What is that intercession? Well, he's representing us to God and praying for God to forgive us and show favor to us, to be on our side. He's doing that job today. He did it yesterday and he'll do it tomorrow. He'll always do it because he always lives to do it. Not like Jim who bunked off. He never bunks off. Our priest is perfectly permanent. But as well as being perfectly permanent, he is also permanently perfect. Listen to the description of his sinlessness in verse 26. Verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, as sinners stuck down here on earth, his heavenly perfections could crush us, just make us feel rubbish about ourselves, couldn't they? But do you see, that's not why he's perfect. He's perfect to save us, not to make us feel rubbish. Look at verse 27. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, because he's sinless. He's sacrificed for Our sins, once for all, when he offered himself. Do you see the logic? Because he is sinless, he doesn't have to die. Because he doesn't have to die, he doesn't have to sacrifice for himself. Because he doesn't have to die for his own sins, he can volunteer to die for our sins. His perfection means that he can save us to the uttermost. Jesus will never be removed from post. Isn't that spectacular? He will never fail. He will never falter. He will never be forced into retirement. As the sinless one, he died for our sins and now he lives forever to call God's favor upon us. This priest is quite simply, end of verse 28, perfect forever. Can you see how great he is? Some of you might know Mike Hovey. He was the principal of the theological college where many of us on the staff studied. He had a mega brain, but he was also a mega pastor who deeply cared for people. A bit like the writer of Hebrews, you've got to say. And he did the job of a true church leader, recognizing his own weakness and sinfulness. He used all the power of his intellect, all his pastoral prowess, to point beyond himself to the priest who is perfect forever and you know as we looked at the years ahead in ministry we saw you know it's a challenge running the race of ministry just running the race of the christian life is a challenge how are we going to keep going we thought to ourselves you know there'll always be mike to go to for help but then there wasn't because he died and it was a tragic loss And of course, Mike wasn't perfect, actually, was he? He made mistakes. He wasn't a perfect pastor. In fact, like all of us, he was a sinner in need of a savior. We get so confused, don't we? Thinking that we need to run to people for help. When all along, the best help we can give each other as people is to point one another to the one who can really help our perfect forever priest. Shall we pray? Father, please help us in all that we do and say, as we run this race together, to point one another to the one who can breathe hope into hopeless souls, and who can give perseverance to pilgrims who are flagging. Help us to point each other to the priest that you have given us, our great high priest. Amen.